0: Luke 10, 25 through 37. Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have given the right answer. Do this, and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers, who stripped and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side." The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. Pray with me for our sermon today. Father, I pray that you would fill me with your spirit to give me words of truth and goodness for us. And I pray that you would fill us with your spirit to have ears to hear and hearts to receive them. In Jesus' name, amen. So last time we did this, I talked about that experiment at Princeton Theological Seminary about how people that are busy don't stop to help those that they see. And we talked about our perception of busyness, and we linked this to some of the ways we're doing intentional listening practices at church, and that was Sermon 1. And I just felt like there was more to say about this. So what we're going to do today is I'm going to make three more observations about the story, which I think are wonderful and important for us. Here's the first one. Look at how the Samaritan helps. Pretty amazing. He doesn't See this guy in need and just give him a few denarii. He doesn't just say, let me pray for you, right? He actually does something pretty amazing, profound, takes time, takes effort, takes risk. But on the other hand, he also doesn't stay with him the whole time and see it through. He continues on his journey, it seems, or his business or whatever he was going to do. He doesn't follow through the whole way. But, on the other hand, he does put in place something so that his healing will be complete and followed through with. He partners with the innkeeper, with someone else. And what I'm realizing in this story is something I've been realizing more and more and becoming more and more convicted of in my life is that loving and helping and healing people requires imagination, and it is a learned skill to do it well. It does not come naturally to all of us, or even most of us. Let's talk about imagination. When I was in college, I had a friend, and this was the first time I had seen this, there are a lot of homeless people in Harvard Square, and uh, my friend, she, instead of you know trying to find some cash or whatnot when people are sitting there and asking for help, she would go into the Obon pan that used to be there, and she would buy hot soup or sandwiches or whatnot, and she would go and she would give that and provide a full meal to someone that was out in the cold that was hungry. And what struck me and what still strikes me is, I didn't have the imagination to think to do that. I could only think in the terms that were handed to me, which was, okay, here's a transaction, and it's monetary. And that was the limits of my imagination. And I've become more and more painfully aware as pastor that I'm hampered as much as anything else by my lack of imagination. And I think we all are. There's a way in which many of us have a heart to help, but we just lack the imagination for what it might mean to do that effectively and really and powerfully. Years later, I had a different friend after college, and she did something else. Again, I never would have thought of doing this. I can tell you sheepishly. She didn't go into ABP and buy meals and hand them to people. She would ask folks if they wanted to join her for a meal. And she would eat with folks that were homeless in Harvard Square. And again, that blew my mind, or more specifically, expanded My imagination. And I realize it's a skill, too. It's imagination, but it's also a learned skill. I was rereading this week a book that someone recommended to me a little while back. It's fantastic. It's written by uh, two professors at Covenant College in Lookout Mountain, Georgia. It's called When Helping Hurts. And it's by folks that have spent a lot of their time and efforts in academic and real-world practical energy going to places like slums in Africa and trying to think and study, what does it mean to actually really help people that are in profound need? And they break things out in ways that I found extraordinarily useful and I still don't quite appreciate and understand, and they say, look. There are three basic types of help, and you need to distinguish between them if you really want to help someone. There's relief. And relief is when someone that's in a status quo equilibrium situation all of a sudden has that blown out of the water by some unexpected, horrible thing, and they need immediate and temporary help to bring them back to their status quo. So these are people like the victims of a hurricane or a child who's taken away from their parents and needs a place to sleep for the night, or a teacher who is all of a sudden saddled with a huge medical bill that could otherwise derail her life. So these are situations where there is an immediate and temporary need, typically for an infusion of funds. That's relief. That is when you give to someone. And that's an important thing that we see. They characterize the Samaritan and the man beaten as a case of relief, which is almost certainly true. And then there's rehabilitation, which is different, which is something like someone's status quo equilibrium itself is problematic. They're living below the poverty line. They're living, they're not flourishing. Life is unduly hard and impossible. Giving someone an influx of temporary cash is not the way to help in that situation. And they talk about in their experience, one of the best practices that people talk about is instead of giving to someone, you work with someone. You partner with them to help them to develop new practices and new ways and new situations, and it may require helping them fill out applications for different programs or getting government housing or something. You know, there's all sorts of ways that rehabilitation works, but it's different from relief. They talk about a third category called development, which I won't talk about today because I don't really understand it. That's okay. But they say one of the biggest mistakes of North American churches is treating situations of rehabilitation or development like relief. So we want to throw money at a problem. That's our knee-jerk reaction. When really it's relationship risk and reciprocity that are required to really help someone. In other words, we want a quick fix. Instead of that slow, patient unfolding over time, sometimes say no, sometimes say yes, the hard work of years-long loving someone into a more flourishing situation. That's not our natural mode. They give the example of this slum in Kenya called the Kiberia Slum in Nairobi, Kenya, and it's it's just convicting, and they talk about how there are all these organizations that have come in there in recent years, and they want to provide a quick fix, and they send enormous amounts of cash, and then they look, and when results aren't immediate, they leave. And they talk about how that's done more harm than good, because no one wants to come in and spend years doing the patient work of trying to recognize and help the folks there recognize their gifts, their talents, their resources, those that might be available to them outside the community, and do the work of building that which takes time. The thing I find fascinating when I think about help and love and healing as a skill, as something we need to learn, is the fact that this Samaritan just happened to be carrying bandages, and healing oil. Probably wasn't his first rodeo. Second observation about the story is I want to just marvel at his request to the innkeeper. How audacious is this? This guy is an innkeeper. Okay, he rents rooms and cleans rooms and does all the administrative work of an innkeeper. And here comes this guy I need you to take care of this man medically and, like, bind his wounds or find someone to do that for me. It's audacious what he asks the innkeeper to do. When I was in law school, I had what I called my second conversion to Christianity. And that involved realizing that my faith was really deep, but it was very narrow wasn't broad, I didn't know a lot about other aspects, other parts of the Christian tradition that I could really learn from, grow from. And one of the things that really changed me at that time was learning more about the Anabaptist tradition, who became the Amish and the Mennonites, and reading a book that I just highly, highly recommend. In fact, I was recently asked to recommend to a college student two books that were life-changing for me. This was one of the two. It's on the back of your handout. It's called Resident Aliens. And what I learned when I was reading Resident Aliens and when I was engaging with the Anabaptists and the way they thought about the Sermon on the Mount in particular is that we have really, really done a poor job of thinking in a Christian way about the relationship between the church and the world. So when we abdicate all responsibility, for taking care of the poor in our society to the government, that's for government programs. That's that thing. Instead of working to do that more as the church, that's a problem and a failure. And when we use the techniques of the state instead of techniques of the church to solve problems, And when we assume that worldly wisdom and God's wisdom really aren't that far apart, and that the world and the church mean the exact same thing by words like peace or justice, and when we underestimate how nonsensical it is in the eyes of the world to love your enemies instead of kill them, we make big mistakes. And here's what it looks like. So you contrast, for example— the way that the early church handled the problem of abortion and the way that we handle the problem of abortion. What we do, because we have a really unhealthy view of the relationship between the church and the world, is we devote our millions of man hours and millions of dollars to try to legislate our morality onto a pluralistic society. That's our solution to a problem like abortion. What the early church did, in contrast, is when Romans didn't want certain children like girls, and they would literally take them down to the river and drown them, the church would go down to the river and they would take those babies and raise them as their own. It's a very different understanding of church and a very different understanding of what the church might do in its relationship with the world. I still think there is so much to be said in this regard. But I've also realized over the years that my sort of Anabaptist impulse To keep the church and the world separate and distinct and clear can also be dangerous. It can be reductive and simplistic and problematic because it fails to recognize that the lines are just not that neat because God is always at work in the world. So we have to hold the sort of Anabaptist wisdom in tension with other impulses in Scripture. And I've talked about these a lot lately. There's the way that God, if you look and catch these glimpses throughout the Bible, God is always working in unexpected, surprising ways to expand his kingdom. So two spies from Joshua come in to Jericho and they find Rahab, this What, non Jewish pagan heathen prostitute who has heard of their God and knows their God is going to grant them victory and lies to save them? How did she know about Yahweh? And we talked about Julius, the kind centurion in Acts 27 who saves Paul's life. And we talked about the Roman centurion in Matthew 8 who has faith greater than Jesus has ever seen in Israel. And I always, always talk about this verse I put down on your handout from Amos because I think it's maybe the most mind-blowing verse in the Bible because it sounds like, on the face of it, Amos 9:7 is talking maybe possibly about non-Jewish exoduses. That God has what? Been at work among the Philistines and been at work among the Arameans? And if you pay attention to scripture, there's all these ways that the lines kind of blur because God is always working outside of the lines in ways we don't feel comfortable with. These are important verses. This is is important for me because I've always been confused how to reconcile these verses. The next two on your handout. Luke 9 and Luke 11. So in Luke 9, Jesus says, whoever is not against you is for you. And that really helps the point that I want to make today in the sermon about the Samaritan and the innkeeper. There is a generosity and an openness to recognize that, look, someone may not share my worldview, someone may not share my faith, but they might in some profound way be, be, be for J- Jesus, even if they don't recognize it. That's Luke Nine, maybe, possibly, in light of some of the other things I'm talking about from Scripture. But then Luke 11 works entirely differently, and it confuses the heck out of me, because it's different. Because there, Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me. So wait, which is it? What's the default position, with or against, and how do you change that? What? And I read about this this week. Here is a typical way that scholars reconcile these, and I'll offer it for what it is. I don't think it's necessarily right, but it's kind of cool. It's kind of interesting. In the one case where Jesus says, whoever is not against you is for you, he's giving us a way to think about others. That's a generosity, that's an openness. You go out in the world, if someone is not against me, they're open, they're for me. In the latter case, where he says, whoever is not with me is against me, is a way to evaluate ourselves. It's a way to say, am I remaining on the fence? Am I remaining neutral about Jesus? That's not really giving him lordship of my life. You see the difference? Now, as I said, I'm not not entirely convinced by this. I don't know that the context works that way. I might put it something more like this. If you see someone out there in the world doing Jesus's work. See, the context was someone is casting out demons in Jesus's name, and he wasn't part of their group. He wasn't part of the disciples. And Jesus says, whoever is not against me is with me. If you see someone doing Jesus' work in the world, well, that's God's work in them. If you see someone in the world and they are actively opposing God's kingdom, they're awaiting God's work in them. That's how I might reconcile those things. But the point is simply this. What we learn with the Samaritan and the innkeeper is that I I really do think, against some of the Anabaptist tendencies, we have to morally engage all people. Morally engage all people. We have to realize that God may well be beginning to work in their lives, and we have to give God a chance to work in their lives by morally engaging them. And in fact, and this may be taking it a little too far. I don't don't think so. In fact, what the Samaritan with the innkeeper might teach us is something I've been struggling with for a while. And I've talked about this with you openly, my deep ambivalence, about the ways that I've been taught evangelism, sharing your faith. And I told you that I have basically been taught, as I'm sure many of you have, that evangelism is about, primarily about apologetics. It's intellectual, and it's a zero-sum game. And it's about teaching and convincing and persuading someone about how they are wrong, and you are right, they are in darkness, you are in truth, they are unhappy, you are happy so that they will come to be on your side of this moral divide. That's a little bit polemic, but that's kind of how I was taught evangelism. But the Samaritan challenges me. Here's a better way, maybe. Here's a better way to hope and to bring people to the light and the truth and the love who is Jesus. Maybe, just maybe, we offer them the opportunity to come alongside us and begin to participate in the kingdom. I've read or heard twice this week that the most common pattern is that people follow Jesus before they actually know him. Maybe that's what we see with the Samaritan and the innkeeper. I've also learned recently from both sociologists and actual missionaries that the most common way that people turn their lives over to Jesus is by being grafted into the community of Christians. And I wonder if the Samaritan and the innkeeper isn't even an example of this. Join in the good work of God healing the world. Will you help me do that? Final observation is about fruit. What I'm struck by is the lack of evident fruit at the end of the story as we tend to define fruit. We were struggling this with uh, about this at a recent elders meeting. We're thinking about testimonies of being out in the world and being open to and listening to and encountering our neighbors without our headphones in and without staring at our iPhones. And we thought, well, how would those testimonies work, though? Wouldn't it be weird and lame if we invited people to stand up and say, I had a good conversation with someone at a coffee shop this week. Is that really a testimony? There's no evident, obvious fruit there. I mean, it would be one thing if you had the conversation. And then that person said, I want to know more about Jesus. We define that as measurable fruits. But without that, we don't have anything to measure. So what do we do? And what I'm struck by is the lack of fruit at the end of this story. What happens to this guy who was beaten and robbed and left for dead? I mean, does he heal? After he heals, what? Does he go back to being a terrible person? Or is he moved and, and somehow impacted by the kindness he's received to change his life if it needed changing? Or maybe he was a great person to begin with. Maybe he was following Jesus. Maybe he was a disciple. We don't know all of those things. All we know is the simple, good, kind act that was done. We struggle with that. Psychologists have shown that charitable giving goes up dramatically when giving gets closer to the stated goal. In fact, they've done this experiment. They said to a group of people, Sheila needs to sell two candy bars to hit her giving goal. Versus, they told another group, Sheila needs to sell 32 candy bars to get to her giving goal. And people gave dramatically more when Sheila only needed to sell two candy bars. Why? Because we love to be effective. We want to hit a measurable goal. That's how we are. By the way, that's why NPR structures, they're giving the way that they do. We need to hit $60,000 this hour. And then tomorrow you tune in, in a different hour, they need to hit $30,000 because they're tapping into that psychological phenomenon. They get more money that way. We want effectiveness. And the problem with this is that I don't know that we can cling to that tendency and serve God faithfully. Another observation I had about this is that we don't bring that same level of scrutiny, that same demand for tangible, immediate, measurable fruit to non-ministry areas of our life, and shouldn't that convict us? We go to work all the time every day and we work 10 hours or more and we don't say when we come home, what fruit for the kingdom did I bear today? We only do that when we struggle or worry about whether or not we should engage in some sort of Christian ministry work. That kind of worries me. There's something beautiful about wasteful, inefficient love. I have a friend who's homeless, has been for many years, and he was telling me the story of how he has sat in on different classes at Harvard with professors who teach about homelessness. He sat in on one class, and he sat in the back the whole semester, and he asked to meet with the professor, and either the professor or his TA said, I'm sorry, he's, he's a very important, very busy man, and he can't meet with you. You could come to one of the dinners that he asked for the students at the end of the semester, and then he met. Then he made the same request of another professor, whose name happens to be Henry Nowen, who many of you know. Henry Nowen took him out to lunch for three hours, and then met with him two more times. Henry Nowen is an important person. He is a busy person. His work could be, dare I say, much more effective if he had not spent those hours with this one homeless person. There is something so right and so abusable and so Jesus-like about inefficient, wasteful giving. Two more points and then I'm done, I promise. I think we shouldn't obsess over the results ahead of time. Let's worry about that once we get into the thing, right? We can't let our worry, oh, will there be fruits, prevent us from doing something. We do it, and then maybe we worry about that later. Seems to be a better way to approach things. Here's the last thing I want to say, and of all the things I've said today, I think this is the most important. I've been careful in this last point to use the word results, not fruits. See, the way Christians typically talk about these things is they talk about fruits of our ministry. How many people's lives were changed for the better? How many people are now flourishing? How many people now have homes? How many people are not hungry? How many people are loving and serving and giving their lives to Jesus in profoundly beautiful ways that glorify him and his kingdom? We call these things fruits. I don't call those fruits, I call those results. Results are good. But here are fruits. You know what fruits are? Fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those are fruits. That is what we seek and what we hope for and what we pray for and yearn for regardless of results.